Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Before we begin, I would like to play you all the beginning of the voicemail that Reed and Derek left me asking me to do this. Is that, is that you up there? Is that you up there? Is that, is that you up in there? That, what are you doing up If you're wondering why I played that, besides the fact that I make antagonizing Reed and Derek a pastime, I thought it would be nice to break the ice a little because I am incredibly nervous to do this. And you might be thinking, Elizabeth, that makes no sense. You do theater. You talk in front of people all the time. And to you I say, that's not me, that's a character. I am not a tortured wife. I am not an evil school child. And I am not a bed and breakfast owner. They are completely separate. Okay, then you might say, but you get up in front of us every Sunday as yourself to make the announcements. And again, that's not really me. Oh no, I lost my place. Also, I get nervous before that, too, which I thought would have gone away by now, but it still feels like the first time every single time. The point is, most of the time when I get up in front of people to talk, it's not about me, and that suits me just fine. I do not like to be vulnerable and talk about myself. I don't want to tell you all about myself. I don't want you guys to know about my past. I don't want you to know that I'm still a work in progress. I really don't want to cry in front of you, but since I'm an easy crier, that seems pretty inevitable. I don't want to do this. I'm afraid I'll be tarnished in your eyes. As irrational as it is, I'm not even convinced you don't all already secretly hate me. So why would I risk making you openly hate me by showing you who I really am? So why am I doing this? If I am so uncomfortable with the idea of you people knowing anything about me, why did I agree to tell you all about me? I could have said no, so why didn't I? I said yes because other people before me have said yes. And because they said yes, I am where I am today. Lydia Richards showed me that you can be a work in progress and still love God and people well. John Jones showed me that even the ones that look like they have it all together can still be a mess inside. Ellie Jensen showed me that being bold is how you make peace. They all took the risk, they told their stories, and they changed me. God changed me, showed me he wanted me, and that I belonged through the stories those people and so many others were brave enough to tell. So here's mine. Resurrector, I hardly know her. (laughs) I hope you all enjoyed that title because it is the only one you get. Because I'm not a complete anarchist, you can see some pictures of my family. Uh, That's my brother Ryan, the tall one in the middle. He's my twin. Yes, he goes here. And no, you probably have not met him unless you're Cora. And then that's my mom, Stephanie. She is the friendliest person you'll ever meet. We're going to ignore that ghost in the middle because of bad lighting. Um, And that's my dad behind me, Scott. (laughs) Some of you might know him as the wine-making, karate-doing biker lawyer. And he would hate that you all know so much about him. I am my father's daughter. I grew up in a town about the size of Kirksville, about 45 minutes south of St. Louis. Overall, it was a pretty good place to grow up. I've always thought of my childhood as stable and normal. 
I went to the same school from kindergarten all the way until I graduated high school. My parents still live in the same house they brought me and my brother home from the hospital to. We went to the same church that my grandma went to for years and years. Sunday school every week, my mom sang on the praise team. Nice and normal and boring. Emphasis on the boring. By the time I was in the fourth or fifth grade, my parents were dragging me out of bed every Sunday to go to church. I went to public school and a lot of my friends weren't Christian and they told me glorious stories of sleeping in until noon on Sundays. And then their parents made them waffles and did their weekend homework for them while they devoured waffle after chocolate syrup covered waffle. Okay, I probably made that last part up. But to a person who is not and has never been a morning person, not having to get up early on a weekend to go somewhere and listen to a grown-up talk about things I couldn't understand sounded amazing. So I put up a huge fight, and about as often as not, my parents gave in. And sometimes I wish they had tried harder, but the more I reflect on what kind of kid I was, the more I think that I wouldn't have fought that battle as hard as they did. I still went some Sundays, but there were quite a few that I missed. I have a very distinct memory of watching TV on a Sunday morning when I was a kid and realizing that I hadn't been to church in a month. But mom was still singing on the praise team and her friend's kids joined the youth group and since that was in the evenings, I had no excuse not to go. I really didn't mind going to youth group. I had grown up with those kids and considered them friends. The youth group did a lot of fun stuff and besides, my issue was never with God or the church anyway. I just didn't care enough to get up early. But with youth group came church camp, and wow, if any of you went to church camp growing up, you know what I'm talking about. But for those of you who didn't, church camp has this way of breaking you down and building you back up and setting you on fire and sending you out. At least that's what it did for me. The summers before and after sixth grade, I spent a week at sanctuary camp. Camp is spelled with a K. It's very important to me that you know that. And both times they sent me home undone. I would even get up to go to church without being forced for a while. But over the course of a few weeks, I would pull myself back together and the same apathy would set back in. At sanctuary camp, we had a period of time each day where we split into specific activities like music, ultimate frisbee, art, those kinds of things. Anyone wanna take a guess what activity I signed up for both years? Theater. That's right, for my acting debut, I played the devil in a play about the seven deadly sins <laughs> that we wrote ourselves, a group of 11 to 17 year olds. I wish I had a picture, I don't. It was terrible and wonderful and likely foundational to the course my professional life is on now. The second year, there was an older guy in the theater group who kind of became like a big brother to me. I cannot for the life of me remember his name, but I remember that we tormented each other the way siblings do. On the last day of camp, as we were saying goodbye, he grabbed my arm when I went in for a high five, twisted it behind my back, and wouldn't let me out until I promised I was coming back to camp next year. Of course I was. Our church's youth group came to this camp every year. I promised, and we went our separate ways. It was a promise I wish I never had to break. That same summer, my church's pastor had retired and a new pastor took his place. It was a big change for the church. Our previous pastor had been a widower in his mid-60s who kind of scared me as a kid. This new guy was fresh out of seminary. He had a wife and a baby on the way and he spent his first Sunday laughing with the congregation at coffee and donuts after service. It was a big change, but a good one. Overall, we were optimistic. It lasted until September. I mentioned my mom was on the praise team for the contemporary services. 
It started with the leader of the praise team bringing some concerns to the new pastor. It escalated to the leader being fired. The rest of the praise team was called into a meeting with the elders. I wasn't there, but from what my mom tells me, the gist of the meeting was, don't criticize the pastor or get out. So we did. I guess in hindsight, we weren't technically kicked out, but it was close enough. For an angsty seventh grader like yours truly, it was rejection. It was the church looking at my family and saying, you are not like us, you are not good enough, we do not want you here. And for a 13-year-old, that's really easy to internalize and build walls around. We eventually found a new church. I wanted absolutely no part of it. Sure, I hadn't regularly attended the old church for several years, but dang it, I'd been baptized in that church, my grandma still went there, and it was mine. What right did that guy have to tell me I didn't belong? Why did I have to go to a new church? No, I wouldn't do it. But with the new church came a renewed effort by my parents to get us to go to church, and so for months we were there every Sunday. My brother and I attended their middle school Sunday school class, and we also joined the youth group. But I had my own little rebellions. I didn't speak in Sunday school, and I stood outside the church after youth group until my mom came and got me. I refused to make friends at the new church. Looking back, this was a defense mechanism. If the people who had baptized me as a baby and watched me grow up in the old church could let some new guy kick me out, say nothing, and keep on going like nothing ever happened, how on earth was I supposed to trust these strangers? I was the new kid. These people had no loyalty to me. I'd lost my faith in the church at the ripe old age of 13. They did not want me. I was not good enough for them. This continued through middle school and early high school. I'm not saying I never thought at all, but even when I allowed myself to become friendly with some of the kids in youth group, I held them all at an arm's length. I couldn't trust them. Throughout all of this, I still believed in God, and I believed he loved me. But I was so angry and confused by that love. Isn't God's love supposed to manifest through his people? If that was true, why was I so unloved in the old church? Why wasn't he filling my life in the new church? I knew God loved me, but I felt so distant from that loved and love, and I had no idea how to change that. So I pulled away. I slowly stopped attending church and even the youth group. I felt guilty. I loved God and I wanted to do the things he wanted me to. I wanted to be a part of his body, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't let anyone in, and that included him. I wasn't good enough for him to dwell in. I convinced myself that I would step away, get myself all shiny and clean, and then it would be easy to let God and people in because there would be no more bad stuff to hide. Needless to say, that didn't go very well. My relationship with God went from being apathetic to a source of anxiety I threw myself into extracurriculars to distract myself. If I was busy, if I found people that wouldn't look too hard at the bad stuff, I wouldn't have to confront any of it. In reality, I was looking for people that were worse than me. If I had a moral high ground, no one could tell me I wasn't good enough. And that's not to say I didn't love the friends I made in my high school theater and band departments. I loved and still love them so much, but I used them as a shield, as something to compare myself against and think, at least I'm not as far from God as they are. I lived in a world and a faith of at leasts. I'm not going to church, but at least I believe in God. I don't have Christian friends, but at least my friends tolerate me being a Christian. I can't kick my sexual sin, but at least I'm not actually having sex. That last one was the one that really got me. 
as it's gotten so many. Our culture puts an, such an emphasis on sex and our churches demonize it so heavily that it is nearly impossible to avoid sexual sin and even harder to come to God when you struggle with it. And when you live in a world of at least, it's harder to admit that it's even a problem. I wasn't as bad as other people, and that was good enough for me. I got my first boyfriend my senior year of high school, which didn't help at all. He asked for a little here. I offered a little there. But we never crossed that last line, so it was fine, right? Slowly, our physical relationship outpaced our emotional relationship. Then it started to replace it. And eventually, we had no connection anymore. We were just in it to feed our lust. As I'm sure you can imagine, this made long distance really difficult when I came here. We were trying to salvage a relationship that didn't exist anymore, and it just wasn't working. I also had a precious few Christian friends for the first time in my life, which was growing my relationship with Jesus, which should have been a good thing, but just deepened my guilt and resentment towards my boyfriend. I wanted to get closer to Jesus, but I had this sin I couldn't stop and couldn't take to him, and I blamed my boyfriend for keeping me there. This was not healthy or sustainable, and unsurprisingly culminated in us breaking up over Thanksgiving break my freshman year. And that should have been a relief, right? I was free. I could shed that sin and pursue God, and everything would be great. This was my fresh start. No, that didn't happen. My ex might have been an outlet for my sin, but he wasn't the root of it. And because I'd spent my entire first semester trying to salvage our relationship instead of putting down roots here, I had basically nothing to fall back on, no friendships deep enough to handle this, no church to help me find comfort in my faith, nothing. I trusted people less than ever, and I trusted the church even less than that. I was stuck in my sin. I hadn't read the Bible or even prayed with any kind of consistency in years. I still didn't feel good enough to come to God. The end of my first semester and start of my second was my darkest hour, my rock bottom. I was alone and scared, and I was angry. I was so angry at God, and any little thing would set me off. By some miracle, this weirdo I met in my creative writing class convinced me to join his small group. Thank you, Max. And I went regularly, but I still didn't feel like I belonged. I kept my mouth shut because I didn't think they wanted to hear or could handle what I had to say. I had such a weird mix of pride and insecurity it was kind of like I was sitting in that small group thinking, you idiots think that God will fix everything because you've never done anything wrong, and if you were a sinner like me, you'd know better. Spoiler alert, I was the idiot. And slowly, over the course of that small group and the following semester, I began to trust the people I was meeting. I got the courage to start attending CCF services by the end of fall my sophomore year. I met Lydia Donaldson, one of my closest friends, I have cried on her couch more times than I'd care to admit, only for her to pat me on the head and tell me I'm not alone with a healthy dose of, you're not special, stupid head. She and so many other people here lovingly, gently showed me just how dumb I was. Everyone has a past. Everyone has a story. I made friends here, real ones that loved me and didn't balk at the few glimpses of the dark stuff I let them see. And in a true miracle that can only come from God, the dark stuff started disappearing. He freed me from my sin. He taught me I could trust him. 
And I won't pretend that I don't still struggle with sin and insecurity and doubt. Remember, I think you all might secretly hate me. But these things have less of a hold on me. In taking it all to God, I found that those things couldn't rule me anymore. I think when I got here, I wanted CCF to fix me. I had learned, or maybe taught myself, that the church didn't have a place for someone like me. That to belong in a church or receive God's love, everything that made me, me, had to go. I needed to become some shiny, happy version of myself that wasn't actually anything like who I am. But when I think about it, that doesn't make much sense. It's not like God made me or anyone else with a cookie cutter and I just happened to get a little weird shaped in the oven. God is a sculptor and anyone who knows anything about sculpting knows that you cannot produce exactly the same product twice. To try would probably result in something pretty ugly. Isaiah 64, eight says, yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. That verse comes on the heels of a pretty scathing indictment of Israel, which to me makes it so much more beautiful. God is taking every dark thing in your past and shaping it for good. God has taken me, not some idea of a, a good Christian, but me, with my past and my flaws, every person and place that got me here, and he has built something new. I didn't need CCF to fix me. I needed you to love me. I needed to hear your stories and the way God used them and I needed to believe that he can use mine too. But before we get too deep into that and where I am now, we need to rewind, a lot. Some of you who know me really well might have noticed, but I left a character out at the beginning. I showed you my mom and dad and brother, but I didn't show you all my sister. This is Rachel. Our whole lives, people have told us we look exactly like each other, but we've never been able to really see it. We took this picture on a cruise my family went on, and then like four years later, we recreated it and realized that we'd swapped haircuts, and even putting the pictures side by side, I still don't think we look alike at all. Secretly as a kid, I wished it were true. I wanted to be just like her. She's three years older, and had you asked 10-year-old me, I would have told you she was the coolest person in the world. When she started taking horseback riding lessons, I had to do the same when she decided at church camp before her senior year that she wanted to be a youth missionary after high school, little freshman me decided the same thing, but secretly and in my head. When she went back on that and decided she was going to study physics instead, I decided I would figure out something else to do with my life. I don't talk about my sister that much. For one thing, she's not around here, so she doesn't come up, but also talking about her is a little too much like talking about myself. More specifically, it's too much like talking about the person I used to be or could have become. I wanted to be like her so much, and we were very similar for a long time. We grew up going to the same church. We were in the same youth groups, went to the same camp. That play I was in, the one where I played the devil, she was envy. We both got burned by our old church. We both pulled away from God. And when she went off to college my sophomore year of high school, we pulled away from each other. I don't really know how it happened. Maybe it was just the natural consequence of not living together anymore. But suddenly, my sister started changing into a person I barely recognized. She had a hard couple of years, which I won't get into the details of, but suffice it to say she lost herself, then half found herself, and is now a little adrift. 
Meanwhile, I was here, being loved and encouraged and encountering God like I never have before. Last spring, on a trip to Arizona, my family went on a hike through the desert. My sister and I pulled ahead of the group pretty quickly. We have a shared interest in true crime, and we were talking about how an episode of a true crime podcast would absolutely begin with a family walking into the desert and never returning. And kind of offhand, she made a comment about how she wouldn't mind being lost in the desert with me, but she would rather be murdered than stuck in the middle of nowhere with the rest of our family. I had no idea how to respond to that. I didn't feel that way. Sure, our family has issues and we get on each other's nerves, but I wouldn't go so far as to say I'd rather be dead than alone with them. But the thing is, she said it like she didn't have any doubt at all that I would agree. In that moment, I saw the chasm between who I was and who I am, and I realized that my sister was standing on the other side. My instinct in moments like that is to look away. That is the old life, the hurt I used to live in. But God showed me a better way, and he healed me. Did he keep me here in this moment in life to show it to her? I've been thinking a lot about resurrection lately and why God chooses to resurrect. The dying part makes sense to me. The old you must die. I tried for many years to love God and keep my old ways, and it just didn't work. God tore my life down my freshman year, and I'm so grateful he did because it was a life that was killing me anyway. But I don't understand why he resurrected me. I used to hate Luke 17:33 and Matthew 10:39 and every other verse in the Gospels where Jesus tells us that those who seek their life seek to save their life will lose it. I didn't get why I had to die. But then I did die, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So I moved on to hating the second half of that verse. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. I don't want to find it. I wanted nothing to do with my old life. That life wasn't who I was anymore, and those people no longer knew me. If I had my way, I'd have been reincarnated instead of resurrected. Everything old would be gone, only the new and the good would be here. But God does not pluck us out of the life we're living when he gives us new life. While inside we are completely different, on the outside, everything, from the scars on our skin to the people in our families, is exactly the same. I used to think that if God ever saw fit to raise me from the dead, I wouldn't recognize my life. In many ways, that is true. I don't see the world the same way. I like to think I look at people with a kinder eye and an extended hand. But only the new people that come into my life. The ones that only know the aftermath. The friends I had in high school, all those people that lived in my at least, I've left behind. It's kind of easy to brush friends off and say, oh, we just grew apart. But my family did not go so quietly. As much as I want to leave the old life behind, I cannot deny the flesh and blood I still live in. My sister stands as a reminder of who I used to be and the life I used to live. Sometimes I wonder what it was like for Jesus coming out of the tomb on the morning of the resurrection. The stone rolls away. Jesus walks out. The guards tremble. Heaven is singing its victory. He walks down the road, and it's completely still. There's no one to greet him, no one to say, you did it. He walks a little further. He sees a hungry woman begging for food. No one spares her a crumb. There's a homeless child that no one will take in and no one sees, but Jesus looks. 
No one spares him a second glance. There are still scars on his hands and feet and side. He has conquered death and everything is different, but at the same time, exactly the same. Life moves on, the world is still broken. For some reason, we seem to think that the world's brokenness is an excuse to leave it that way. We think having a heavenly mindset means keeping our eyes pointed up and trying to tune out the suffering all around us. But if Jesus did see those things on that morning, he did not look away. When he saw my sister in the desert, hurt by the family and church that were supposed to love her, he did not look away. If the world was a lost cause, wouldn't he look away? If there was no hope, would he leave us here? Would he change our hearts but keep our bodies and lives intact? My absolute favorite Bible story is the woman at the well. That woman had done everything wrong. She had had five husbands and still had no one to love her. When the chosen did this story, the woman said to Jesus, I am rejected by others. She was broken and dirty. She didn't think she was good enough. And Jesus looked at her and he did not reject her. He did not tell her to cleanse herself and then she could come to him. He told her he was Messiah and that if she wanted the living water, she only had to ask. She didn't have to convince anyone she was good enough. She was made new. He sent her back to her city, to the ones that rejected her, and she told her story. Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. She went home, and the people who knew her before saw she was changed, and they believed. I have come to realize that God does not remove us from the life we used to live when we find him, because that is where he wants to work. When I finally started to trust that God loved me as I was and let myself be changed by that love, I wanted to share it everywhere. I thought that meant going out and finding new people and bringing them in. And while that is true, I think God is trying to do more. I wanted to leave the old life behind, but God is not a God who leaves people behind. He has built the new life upon the old. And maybe I could have realized this three years ago before I lost slash cut contact with almost all of my friends from high school, but that's not worth dwelling on. I can't change the past any more than I can erase it. I can reach out now, I can show them the love I've found, and sometimes they'll respond, and sometimes they'll look away. I won't pretend it doesn't hurt when they look away. To look into a face you know and love intimately and see them look at you as if you're a stranger is a bone-deep pain, but it is the pain of my Savior, the pain of new life, and I have to try. God resurrected me into this moment and these circumstances so that he could keep working here. He wants the people I think aren't good enough. He wants the parts of my life that I think are separate from him. He wants my sister. And if he can raise me in all my pride and fear and shame from the dead, why not her? Why not the people in... <laughs>